All right, welcome back. We are in Ecclesiastes 3, if you want to make your way there this morning. Ecclesiastes 3, there's outlines in the back. Please grab one. We've got a lot in front of us, and we're going we're gonna to cover some ground, which is always the case, right? Um, trying to take Ecclesiastes in bigger clips. Good to see your faces today. Sure to be another warm one. Let's go ahead and uh, with your Bibles open, you have an outline, if you need one, just grab one. Let's go ahead and ask the Lord's help. It's Sunday school, you're here. You can kind of approach this with a sense of kind of rote memory, like this is what we do, but there's an eagerness that should be uh, in the midst of our seat uh, to dive into God's word and mine from it what he has for us today. In order for that to happen with any degree of productivity, the Lord will have to intervene, right? So let's ask for his help. Father God, we thank you for this morning. We, we're grateful. We're grateful for the local church. We, we thank you for your wisdom to ordain that we would gather on the Lord's day for the purpose of exalting and lifting high the name of Jesus Christ together. And in the midst of that, in your infinite wisdom, you saw fit to minister to your people in profound and supernatural ways that would lead to our transformation that would lead to us representing you and reflecting you in more earnest, consistent ways each and every day. We are humbled by the work you do among us. We're humbled by the fact that you are with us. And we're grateful for the help we're now today and ask that you would please illumine our minds, help us to understand, and give us grace from your hand to apply for your glory. We pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Ecclesiastes chapter three, you'll remember that on a grand big picture scale, Solomon is doing something, right? He's drawing your attention to the futility of life without him, okay? Solomon says, I've been there, I've done that, okay? To try to find meaning and significance in anything else outside of me is Futile is vain, the Lord says. It's like trying to catch the wind in your hand. Vanity of vanities, havel, all is vanities. It is spiritual suicide because without God, A, nothing makes sense. And without God, life simply becomes an attempt to numb all of that emptiness that resides inside of you, as well as that fear of death that you intrinsically possessed apart from him. And so Solomon draws our attention here for a purpose, right? So that we would be taken up with the significance of something else. And that is the significance of life with God. And can I just say at this point, while that's kind of a main idea over the whole book, 12 chapters, uh, we have a shepherd, you'll recall in chapter 12, he's, I've written words of truth, written them correctly, given to me by one shepherd. We know who the shepherd is, it's the Lord himself. The Lord has given great care, orderly care to extend these words to you. And when I say great care, it's because we have a shepherd, praise God, that knows you better than you know yourself, okay? For God knows if we're gonna come face to face with the reality of significance and meaning and purpose in life are only found in him and are only enjoyed in him, he's also going to have to dismantle all of the lesser things that we seek to find significance and meaning in. 
and life. So by way of reminder in chapters one and two, that's the first of four different briefcases of of information or sections, right? Solomon, in a sense, puts his hand around our shoulders and walks us down a hallway lined with all of the frustrations that exist with being broken people living in a broken world. And an intimate, accurate view of those frustrations are intended to do something to you. It's intended to drive this heart to a God who is infinitely satisfying. That was chapters one and two. We have 10 more chapters and three more sections, right? This is what I mentioned by the Lord's great care for us through this book. In knowing us better than we know ourselves, God knows that we're also frequently plagued with an array of conundrums in life that mystify us. Every day we look around us and there are, we observe various events that have fall on various people in various times in various ways that just befuddle the mind. They, they trouble us, they, they cause us to doubt this satisfying God that we're to spend our lives fearing and loving. And God knows this. God knows this of you full well. And so he provides two more chapters to the book of Ecclesiastes, chapters three and four, to address these conundrums. He quickly anticipates how those perplexities of life, they shake you, they rattle you to your core. And so God takes us into briefcase number two, section two, which is chapters three through five. And he says, listen, I know there are events in life that you don't understand. I know. He knows that we as human beings, we want to reconcile in our minds how a good and how a satisfying God would allow tragic loss. How he would allow heart-wrenching injustice and soul-crushing pain. How is this possible, right? Pastorally, just be candid with you. I know this is a room It's full of all sorts of accounts of abuse and rejection and neglect and shame and loss and pain and the list goes on. And in and through that heartache, we're all left with this natural and very human question. And I wanna encourage you, it's natural and human. Ecclesiastes 3.14, he's placed eternity in your heart. So these are natural questions. And it's the question of why, right? How do I reconcile these pain-producing events? And how do I reconcile that puzzling sensation that it leaves me with? How do I reconcile these events in a world that was created and sustained by one that I'm told is good and in control? Well, church, this conundrum, and it is that, is nothing new throughout church history. Theology, it's called theodicy, right? The vindication of divine goodness and sovereignty in view of the existence of evil. And it has befuddled the minds of men throughout the centuries. God anticipates this trouble we have as human beings and he thankfully answers or speaks into them in tremendously wise and caring ways. Part of what we'll see even this morning is that God, your God, has actually designed such so that you would not understand these things, but that you would be puzzled in this life, 
and that you would be puzzled for a very God-designed purpose, which leads us to the main idea of section two. The perplexities of life in a fallen world should drive your hearts to a sovereign God. The perplexities of life in a fallen world should drive our hearts to a sovereign God. Our God who is unequivocally in control of all things, amen? And he is worthy of our trust. This is a few verses that you know, Psalm 115, three says, our God is in the heavens and he does whatever he pleases. Psalm 135, six, whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and in earth, in the seas and all the deeps. Lamentations 3.37, who is there who speaks and it comes to pass unless the Lord has commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that both good and ill go forth? Not moral ill, but tragedy, suffering, pain, and loss. Friends, Ecclesiastes forces you to face into that attribute of God and think about it deeply. Not just think about it, but bask in it, love it, and rest in it, that our God is sovereign. And I trust you're thankful for that this morning. Our prayer is that the Lord would give us a robust and faithful view of his sovereignty. To this end, we dive into chapter three, a chapter that's going to lead us, we trust, to believe a number of things about God's appointments on this earth. Again, if you don't have an outline, it's right in the back. We're gonna have eight insights into God's sovereignty. God's appointments are number one, unavoidable. Look at verse one of chapter three. What God has appointed is unavoidable. There's an appointed time, Solomon says, for what? Everything. An appointed time for everything. The grammar there suggests that this has been appointed by someone else. Right? It's a principle not to be missed or taken lightly in the scriptures that that someone else is, we know him to be the Lord God Almighty himself, right? God has appointed a time for everything under heaven. All of life has been ordained by God. I want you to think for a moment by way of just reflection as to where and why is this so helpful, right? You hear a lot of people say, well, God permitted that to happen. You ever hear that? Which is just really an attempt, if you think about it, to rescue God from the so-called problem of evil, right? Which asks the question, how can evil coexist with a God who is all-knowing and all-powerful and all-good? How does that happen? But this word appoint here appears almost 500 times in the Old Testament. And friends, do you, real, do you know that it never means to passively permit anything? God did not permit these things. The problem of evil is only a problem for our, from our own human perspective. It, it happens when we reach the intellectual wall with our, with our ability to understand God. And that understanding is exhausted for God is infinite. And so it requires that we wrestle with it. And to illustrate this, he lists 14 different opposites going back and forth. This is relentless rhythmic list that Solomon provides, indicating that life is doing this. It's arcing back and forth, back and forth. And in the midst of that arcing, your God never loses control. As he says in verse two, 
There's a time to give birth and a time to die. Psalm 139, your death certificate and birth certificate has been already stamped. He knows the very numbers of your days, Psalm 90. George Whitfield says, until the Lord calls me home, I'm invincible, right? He goes on to say, a time to plan and a time to uproot what is planted. A time to kill and a time to heal. Now, that instance for kill there is, it's not one of the Ten Commandments of thou shalt not murder. That's not what this is. The idea here is one of plague and sickness and war. And in the midst of that, God declares who lives and his wisdom, he declares who dies. Familiar with Deuteronomy 32, 39, that God is sovereign over life and death. I will make alive and I will kill. I will wound and I will heal. Our God is sovereign over life and death. Even Hannah in 1 Samuel chapter two says, you are the one who kills, you are the one who makes alive. You determine who goes on and who perishes on this earth. Solomon continues in chapter three, there's a time to tear down and a time to build. build. This was a time you didn't have concrete. So if you think about it in that day, you built everything with mud and rocks or maybe kind of uh, man-made bricks, right? And over time, those bricks would break and you'd have to restack new rocks and bricks. And then there was other times where you had to just like plow it all down and start over. That was pretty frequent in that day. And Solomon says, there's a time to tear down and there's a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. We know this in life, right? There's a time to go to a funeral and there's a time to be jovial and celebrate at a wedding feast. And Solomon is saying, God appoints both of those seasons. He has not lost control in the midst of that which you cannot understand. Verse five, it's a time to throw stones and a time to gather stones. Again, this idea that they would build everything with stones, terraces, staircases, and walkways, and at times those stones would break, they'd have to remove them, they'd have to throw them out, get new ones, and restack them to rebuild. It's highlighting something that you already saw in chapters one and two, right? That there, there, is, there is no permanence in this life. Impermanence marks everything, for everything is transitory and temporary. Again, these 14 opposites are highlighting this thing that you've already seen, life moving back and forth and a God who rests sovereign over it all. Keep going in verse five, there's a time to embrace and a time to shun embracing. A time to search and a time to give up is lost. A time to keep and a time to throw away. A time to tear apart and a time to sew together. In Solomon's day when bad news came, it was customary to rip the front of your clothing, right? And then after a time of mourning had passed, you would sew up that cloth that you had previously torn in your grief. Again, God is sovereign over for both mourning and healing. There's a time to be silent and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. The point of these eight verses is really to point out how actually very little control that you have over your life. 
as if you needed a reminder of that, right? Truth is we do, right? Because we are, uh, human autonomy is something that our hearts naturally gravitate to as if we are resting on a throne and calling the shots and able to prescribe and orchestrate and design our lives so that all is well. And by all means be faithful stewards of this life that you've been given, but know that there is a God who has appointed everything under heaven. I want you to think for a moment that God has appointed, what he's appointed is unavoidable. I want to ask you, what's the implication of that? That what God has appointed is unavoidable. What's the implication of that on a practical level? You tell me this morning. What God has appointed is unavoidable. What's that? It's in concrete. Absolutely. Immovable, unswayable. What else? Don't fight it. Yes, absolutely. And we fight it through grumbling and bitterness. Ask the people of Israel. Excellent. What else? I saw another hand. Don. No effect on God's plan. Okay. We can't change his plan, right? And when we don't understand his plan, there's still a pathway for satisfaction, meaning, right? Ashray, well-being in your inner man, knowing that your God has appointed everything under heaven. Does it mean that we live as kind of fatalistic, pessimistic, woe is me, God's gonna do what he's gonna do? We're gonna see it at the end of chapter three, right? Actually, no, it actually ushers us into and enables us to enjoy life in a way that unbelievers can't to know that our God appoints everything under heaven and those appointments are unavoidable. You think about how we look different from the rest of the world. Tragedy strikes, are believers to look different? Yeah, thank you, thank you. Yes, yes. We're not rattled, we're not dismayed. We don't fall into a pool of self-pity and, sh- and despair. Why? God has appointed everything under heaven. Also prompts us to hold loosely to the things here in this life, to know that life is doing this back and forth. There's nothing that you can do Build your own little castle, your own little world, your own little kingdom, right? That's gonna bring any semblance of permanence. There's a time to tear down and there's a time to build up and God appoints both of them. Hold these things loosely. Second insight into God's sovereignty, verses nine and 10, God's appointments are just. He says, what profit is there to the worker from that in which he toils? I have seen the task which God has given the sons of men with which to occupy them themselves. Notice the one who's doing the appointing. Notice who provides this task, it's, it's God himself. It's the task of life. And the reason this task is seen as a negative thing is because God has made it that way after and because of Genesis 3 when sin entered into the world. Solomon's going to remind us over and over and over again, remember, you live in a fallen world, remember the world is broken, therefore life is hard. I have seen the task of this broken world and it is hard. 
And here's the thing, is it hard in the same way for everyone at the same time? No. Someone appears to have more going on of hardship than perhaps maybe I do in a given moment. God is appointed and what he's appointed is just. It's right even when you don't understand it. God doesn't ever do anything wrong towards us. Not only is his appointments unavoidable, whatever he does is never wrong towards us. Number three, verse 11, God's appointments are good. He has made everything appropriate. That's a word to underline in its time. That word there is good. It's beautiful. It's aesthetically pleasing. He's made everything good and appropriate in its, in its time. This is one of the most beloved verses in the Old Testament because it's really Romans 8.28 of the Old Testament, is it not? He makes all things appropriate in its time. All things good. Only God can bring beauty and good and meaning out of every single event in life. I was talking to Mary before. I remember distinctly sitting with my dad in the back of my grandmother's house. It's on top of a hill and a river's running down. It's running into a lake that never fills. Sound familiar? Ecclesiastes 1. And hospice is there. My dad is passing away from Lou Gehrig's disease. And the whole of Ecclesiastes is in front of me. Everything that he appoints is appropriate, good, and beautiful. Do we always see the goodness? Do we always see the beauty? It's like fall, right? You think about it, everything around you is dying, and even God in the midst of fall has a way of making it beautiful. That's the wisdom and design and grandeur of God. All of his appointments are good and the reason why this is often hard for myself and hard for you is that you don't always see the beauty as you should and to be quite honest you are limited in your capacity to see that beauty in your finite mind he's going to talk about later in chapter three we're going to get there in a moment he's designed it this way because you innately want to know what god is up to from the beginning to the end and yet you cannot Friends, that's, there's a restful place of which to sit right there. God, I want to make sense of everything that you're doing. Your word tells me I can't. And I need, to re, I need to resolve myself to embrace that and be humbled by that. And you know what happens? You take a deep breath and you don't fret. And now you're positioned and postured in a way to enjoy life as a gift from God. God's appointments are good. If you keep reading to verse 11, his appointments are also beyond understanding. He has also set eternity in their heart, yet so that man, here it is, you're incapable of understanding, yet so that man will not find out that the work which God has done from the beginning even to the end. This is a profound theological truth that God has, yes, you bear his image, but part of bearing his image is that he's placed 
like a chip, (laughs) eternity in your hearts. And that means that not only is there this God-shaped void that only he can fill and that's designed for only him to fill, but he's given us this insatiable desire to ask why, to to know what's going on in the world and to know that this world is not all there is. There's this innate gnawing sensation inside of this. If you need an example of that, just go up to the small children's room in children's children's area, right? The, The most important question of which they ask is why? It's innate to us. All of you are natural born theologians. All of you are extremely thoughtful human beings. Question is, are you accurate theologians? We have the ability and the desire to ask the heaviest questions in life, but we do not have the ability to answer those questions apart from who? Apart from God. We long for meaning. But God will not let us have it and know it and enjoy it apart from himself. And therein lies one of the hidden beautiful blessings of Genesis chapter three, right? The fact that we can't find meaning in life is such a blessing because if we could, we wouldn't look to who? We wouldn't look to God. That eternity he's placed inside of us longs to be satisfied in our hearts. You'll remember the main idea of chapters three through five, right? The perplexities of life, and your life is full of them, should drive your hearts to a sovereign God. You keep moving to verses 12 through 13. God's appointments are also gracious. And praise be to him for this. As we read verse 12, I know that there is nothing better for them than, than to rejoice and to do good in one's lifetime. Moreover, that every man who eats and drinks sees good in all his labor. Here's a beautiful phrase. It is the gift of God. Now we've come to some really, really good news. To work hard, to be responsible, to be a good and faithful steward of your life, of everything that's around you is not a bad thing. It's a good thing. It is a blessing. If you find a meal that you enjoy, a steak that you appreciate, the company of a loved one, praise God in the midst of enjoying them. If you find enjoyment in life through a sunset or even a piece of chocolate that perhaps melts in your mouth, praise God and enjoy it. Enjoy it as a gift of God. Let me ask you, if, if you enjoy life but are enjoying detached from the reality that these things that you're enjoying are a gift from him, what are some potential pitfalls that you can fall into? Perhaps you enjoy life, or at least you try, but you do not enjoy it as a gift from his hand. What happens? Idolatry. Those things you set out to enjoy quickly become a, take a more pronounced place in your heart than they ought to. Excellent. What else? Yeah, there's a selfishness that, as if our hearts need any help in that direction, right? There's a selfishness that takes over. There's also a pride that takes over. 
as if I am chiefly responsible of all of this that I enjoy. All of this are gross misuse of earthly blessings. And to be honest, that's why you can find the wealthiest people on the planet who lack for nothing. Exhibit A, Solomon. And he says, trying to grasp for meaning and all of those things, and I had all the leisure and all the resources at my disposal, was trying to catch the, like, tr- trying to catch the wind in my hand. It was there and it was gone. Why? Because Solomon had to come to realize that if I'm going to truly enjoy life, I have to enjoy life as a gift from God. This is why he culminates the end of the book, the chief end of man, when all has been heard and said, right? Fear God and keep his commandments. God's appointments are gracious. So enjoy life as a gift from him. Number six, God's appointments are authoritative. Look at verse 14. I know that everything God does will remain forever. There is nothing to add to it and there's nothing to take from it. There's a verse to stake your life on. Everything God does will remain forever. Don't you feel just that prompting of humble submission to the sovereignty of God well up in your being? At least it should. As much as you and I would like to, if I pull this lever and push this button, I can change circumstances. He says there's nothing to add to it and there's nothing to take from it. God is in absolutely, absolute control. I love the beginning of verse 14 here. The key word at the beginning is I know. (laughs) I know that everything God does will remain forever. Let me ask you this morning, do you know (laughs) this this morning? That what God appoints stands. It's authoritative. And that should do something to us. It should prompt us to submit with a soft heart versus a callous, bitter, grumbling heart. To say in your life, right? Even with Job, the Lord giveth, the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. How is a man able to say that? How are many a men that we know even in our life that have passed before us and they've passed with exemplary, in exemplary fashion Resilient faith, I know that everything God does will remain forever. There's nothing to add to it. There's nothing to take from it. To which we ask, why on earth would I possibly, even as was mentioned here, why would I ever think to fight against the sovereignty of God? His appointments are unavoidable and right and good and beyond our understanding and gracious and authoritative and yet I My fighting persists. You keep moving to verse 14. You realize that God's appointments are also awesome. And this is not the junior high vernacular of awesome. This is in the biblical term of awesome, right? That which prompts awe, fear, and reverence. Look at the end of verse 14. Love it. For God has so worked for an end, that men should fear him. Here we have Solomon the preacher, he 
Here's the practical application of the sovereignty of God. God has designed that we would not understand and the purpose of his design is that we would be in awe of him, that we would fear him. And church, when we, it's safe to say when we buck against the sovereignty of God and when we are bitter and we are grumbling, what are we not doing? We most assuredly are not fearing. We are are not revering and respecting him as we ought and as he deserves. We are not seeing him rightly. And therefore in those moments when we buck against the sovereignty of God, we are also not worshiping him rightly. We are to be in worshipful, amazed fear at the providence and sovereignty of God. And yes, even when you don't understand it. In fact, God has actually made it so that you can't understand it. There's one more insight into this sovereignty. God's appointments are unchangeable. Verse 15 is throwing a lot of curveballs at people. We'll read it now. That which has already been has been already and that which, and that which will be has already been for God seeks what has passed by. Here's what Solomon is doing. It's that God uses that which has passed by as proof that we should acknowledge his sovereign rule now and in the future, right? In other words, to put this another way, we can no more change God's plan going forward as we can going back and changing the past. And so the best way to acknowledge God's sovereignty is to feed it with scriptural accounts of where we see that sovereignty on display, right? You can think of a myriad of instances in scripture. Just take the beginning of Joshua, God loving his people. He disciplines them through the wilderness. God sparing an ungodly woman, Rahab, his parting the Jordan River, his giving the city of Jericho to his people in a massive display of power, as well as his faithfulness to his promises. You see it all throughout the scripture. The Bible wasn't given so we could simply have a bunch of stories to read our kids at night, although let us read those stories. It was given so that we would know the ways of God. That we would know his heart. That we would say, look at who he is. Look at what he has done. You think about back to even Genesis with Joseph, right? You think Joseph initially looked upon his plight as being beautiful and good? What does he say at the end of chapter 50, right? What you meant for evil, God meant for good. What God appoints is unchangeable. And we can be confident of this. As we reach the end of chapter, verse, verse, uh, verse 15, we haven't obviously exhausted the subject of the sovereignty of God quite yet, right? But there are these natural questions that come up and that's what chapter, the rest of chapter three and four speaks to. We'll, we'll cover a bit of it this morning and the rest of it next week in chapter four. But people are prompted to say, okay, wait, this is, this is really great and this is really good and this is really awe-inspiring and, and prompting me to fear the Lord as I ought, but I still have conundrums. I still have perplexities. I get that you say I'm I'm designed such that I can't understand it, but what about injustice? Have you seen it on the earth? What about unfairness? What about oppression? What about isolation and loneliness and poverty and hunger and death? What about these things? And that's exactly what Solomon answers the rest of this chapter. 
as he dives into these enigmas of life that do bewilder us, begoggle the mind. That is that our assessment of life under the sun is often one that we see as being egregiously unfair. And so look at verse 16 for me this morning. In this unfair world, there's some things that we need to make note of here in chapter three, if we're gonna thrive. Number one, the Lord has made it plain that the world will continue to be an unfair place and you need to know this. Aren't you glad you came this morning for this good news, right? He says in verse 16, furthermore, I have seen under the sun, under the sun, remember outside of the first garden before the last garden, after the fall and before redemption, I have seen under the sun that in the place of justice there is wickedness and in the place of righteousness there is wickedness. Now can anyone look at Solomon's assessment of the world and say, yeah, I can see where that jives to today. To some measure this jives with what we see in the world around us. And and while it may be a gross overstatement, what it does do is, is keep us from having hope that things will somehow, someday, some way, get to the place where life will get better under the sun. It just won't. Right? The the Lord himself, Paul, Paul wrote, things will proceed from bad to worse. And we have to be careful here not to be a pessimist, but, but Solomon is definitely saying, hey, it's bad and it's not going to get better. And you need to have a proper perspective for this world and the next. After all, Ephesians tells you that the prince of the power of the air is ruling over this present world. And one of the ways that that rule is manifested is in the places of justice, courts of law. The point is that justice that is exercised by human is never perfect. It's always corrupt. Wickedness prevails precisely where it should not. And that is in the courtroom. You think about our world for a moment, right? Just ponder this world that we live in. Yes, our God is sovereign, but we also see that life is not a bowl of cherries, right? Evil men succeed. Christians don't always win. Justice is perverted in the courts. Planes crash, ships sink. People get cancer, young and old, children starve. Planned Parenthood takes lives. Nazi Germany develops, ISIS beheads people. I mean, it goes on and on and on. And so Solomon is saying, hey, what is the point in following a God who's in control of such a universe? Can't he just fix it? He's just said he's appointed everything. And he said he's, it's beautiful in its time, but man, This is unsettling. I want you to look at later, chapter five. We'll get to it in a couple weeks. We have a hint of this. This is the theme in the book. Ecclesiastes 5.8, if you see oppression of the poor and denial of justice and righteousness in the province, do not be shocked at the sight. This is where I would turn to my all millennial friends who believe that we're in the kingdom of God or where I would turn to my post-millennial friends that we're gonna keep making the world a better place until he returns. Friends, you just need to read the newspaper and turn on the news to realize this world is not getting better. 
This is not the kingdom in its final iteration. And praise God for that, yes? The world will continue to be an unfair place. So don't expect it to be fair. This secret is a good thing. Living by it allows you to thrive and, and, and allows you to resist floundering. And why is that the case? Is because when you look out in the world, yes, you can be unsettled. Yes, you're, you can have a righteous anger at these things, but you know, whatever God or, uh, appoints stands forever. And this world is designed and destined in the present time to, to be corrupt and be broken such that the perplexities of life should do something to the people of God, right? We keep going back to his sovereignty. Our perspective is altered. And on top of that, we live yearning for a, what? We sing about it, for a foretaste of glory divine, right? We yearn for the time when it will be made better, which leads us to the second secret to thrive in an unfair world, the justice of God will eventually settle all injustice. Give verse 17. We're encouraged not to be despaired. Don't think somehow that God has lost control of anything. He says, I said to myself, God will judge. God will judge both the righteous man and the wicked man for a time for every matter and for every deed is there. You can almost Pause and hear Solomon take a deep breath. It's going to be okay. God will one day judge. And guess what? He's actually appointed the time in which he will judge. You see the psalmist, and you see it even in the book of Revelation, right? Chapter 6. How long, O Lord? We all yearn for that day. Well, God will judge and make all things right. God will judge. He's going to get to this later in chapter 12, right? One day, right? The theme is enjoy life in light of judgment. Every man will one day stand before the creator and we will give an account for what we have done. To this end, verses 18 through 21, you see that death is that great leveler. We've seen this already in the book. We'll cover this quickly because it will continue to be a theme. As it's almost humorous how Solomon talks about death here. He says, I said to myself concerning the sons of men, God has surely tested them in order for them to see that they are but beasts. Now, he's not saying that you are a bunch of animals, right? You are distinct from animals. In relation to the fact that we die just like animals, this is the point that Solomon is making. He's not calling you beast. He's just saying that both of you have the same end on this life. Verse 19, for the fate of the sons of men... Right, the fate where they end up and the fate of beast is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. Indeed, they have all the same breath and there's no advantage for man over beast for all vanity. They all go to the same place and he's not talking about heaven or hell. He's talking about they all go to the grave eventually unless the Lord returns before that day. Look at verse 20, all go to the same place. 
all come from the dust and all return to the dust. Who knows that the breath of man ascends upward and the breath of the beast ascends downward to the earth. Death is the great leveler. The wise and the fool die, man and beast die. Solomon is not saying that animals have this same intrinsic image bearing quality as you do. He's just saying that we all die. Death is the great leveler. You think about what the book is designed to do. it's, It's designed to impart wisdom to you so that you would be postured and enabled to enjoy life as God intended. That you would know well-being in your inner man. And there's that old adage is you really don't know how to live until you know how to die, right? And, and, and the book of Ecclesiastes frames that in your mind and in your life. Yes, death comes to all. It is the great leveler. And I love how it ends in verse 22. Even in an unfair world, you see happiness. It doesn't mean happiness is unattainable. Solomon can almost anticipate and feel what we might be played with at the end of verse 21. We can, we can drown in these notions of, well, bad guys win, we all die, there's no justice, this isn't good, right? Why am I even involved in this? I might as well be like an Epicurean, just eat, drink, and die. That, that, that's what I should do. Solomon says, no, 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 no. Just because it's like this doesn't mean that there's no happiness for the righteous or believers. Look at verse 22. I have seen that nothing is better than that man should be happy in his activities for that is his lot or his assignment. God has assigned us to enjoy happiness in life as we find it. It's good that we will be happy. It's just that you will only be happy to the extent that you what? Fear God and keep his commandments. For look at the question of verse 22. We've talked about it already. It's not really a question as it is a statement. For who will bring him to see what will occur after him? The Lord is over these things. Happiness is possible. North Lake, I think here's the takeaway for you and I. If there are to be anyone on this planet that should enjoy life, who should it be? It should be the people of God. Whether you have much, whether you have little, whether your life lacks, relatively speaking, lacks trials compared to others, whether your life is full of hardship after hardship, loss after loss, to all people who fear him and keep his commandments. Who can find enjoyment without him? We saw that at the end of chapter two, the, no one can. And all of those frustrations of life are intended to drive you to that satisfying God and all of these perplexities and all of the conundrums you can't understand and you can't. God has so worked so that men would fear him designed to drive our hearts to a sovereign God. 
want you to think about this week, encourage one another. There are people suffering even here at North Lake Bible Church. There's opportunities to open up the word and encourage one another in your small groups with these very truths. There's one thing to say, my God is sovereign. And as we'll see in the weeks to come, it's a whole other thing to have that sovereignty rest, in your, rest upon your life in a pronounced life-shaping way. If there's anything that's an en- enemy to you knowing inner peace and well-being and ashray is you fretting and grumbling and being bitter and being angry at the providence of God in your life. You will miss out on that which is good, beautiful, just, and right. God's appointments are appropriate, right? Are you thankful for that this morning? We get to sing to him in the next hour. So let's go ahead and ask for his help to worship. Thanks for being here today. God, we thank you for this morning. We want to pause and thank you, God, that you are sovereign. This big theological word that we as the people of God, we embrace. We cherish it while the rest of the world hiss at it. It is a sweet truth to us, and yet we spend the entirety of our days on this broken planet trying to figure out how we rest in that sovereignty, how we trust it, how we experience peace in and through it. And we need grace from your hand each and every day to apply that which we most wonderfully know. Help us to be a people with a robust faith and confidence in these things. And Lord, we pray that you would bolster our faith as such that when trials do come and when perplexities do strike and they will and they do, Lord, your people would be immovable because we are resting in you whose appointments are unavoidable and just and good and appropriate. Yes, even beyond our understanding, yet we are not rattled. May we be distinct upon this earth in which we live for your glory and praise. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen.